Hello listeners and welcome back to Triathlon Science. This podcast is brought to you by Triomechanics Coaching and Black Hat Coffee. Black Hat Coffee is an independent roaster that will send out some beautifully freshly roasted coffee for you, whether you're into espresso and will prefer something maybe a little bit darker, a little bit Brazilian to give you a nice chocolatey kick through that flat white, or whether you're getting into a bit of filter and you fancy something nice, light, a little bit fruity. Black Hat Coffee will have you covered. Not only will they have you covered on the coffee side of things, but they'll also sell you the things to make it in. It's often a misconception that you need to have expensive high-end espresso equipment to make fantastic coffee, but actually my favourite cup of coffee, which tends to be a kind of longish, either black or with a slightly kind of dash of cream in the morning, tends to be something I used to make with an espresso machine until I I came across the idea that essentially Americano, which is really just espresso that has been watered down, is definitely not only not the best way of making a nice long black cup of coffee, but also it tends to, as I say, you're diluting the flavours. You're not really getting a lot of that fruitiness that you can get from some of these coffees. So I moved over to using a V60, and now I've moved on to using something called the Clever Dripper, which is a combination of a V60, which is the kind of conical, um, essentially percolation method, so or uh, pour over method where you put, put the water on top and it, it uh, gradually works its way down through the coffee, extracting all the flavor. And a combination between that and immersion, which is a little bit like a French press. So you put the two together and you get the Clever Dripper. It gives you a fantastic cup of coffee in the morning, definitely something worth experimenting with. You can get all of that and the coffee off the Black Cat website. So check them out, have a look. Hopefully we'll be getting a discount code for you soon that you can essentially, should be able to get a bit of money off your coffee. You get free postage over 25 pounds. So give it a give it a look, check it out and get some great coffee. Because we know that coffee and triathlon and running and these things go together like peas in a pot. So onto today's show, we are focusing today on running. More specifically, we are focusing on starting running again particularly having been a previous cyclist, um, attempted running before. And we have a guest on today who is someone who got in touch with the show because he has had a few issues with trying to run before, would like to start again, but has a few questions around that. So what we discussed today is just around the kind of start of his journey. And it's going to be something that we are going to be doing relatively regularly. This kind of signals a change in part in what this show is going to be offering. I'm trying to move away from the slight monotony of me just standing here discussing various bits and pieces, um, discussing things that I find interesting, moving towards offering individuals the ability to not only ask questions, but also um, kind of put into what the, the content of the show is really about. Because at the end of the day, what I want this podcast to be is to fill a niche, fill somewhere a gap that, um, that can make it useful. Because there are so many good quality podcasts out there to get so many different ideas from. We've got fantastic podcasts looking at the, the science, speaking to the researchers. And I want this podcast to be useful. At the end of the day, that's that's all it's there for, is to provide information and be useful and hopefully help you find something that may help you improve your sport. So we're going to move on today to the interview with Matt. And hopefully if you are newer to running or if you are getting maybe the injury issues that Matt describes, hopefully these uh, the little uh, elements that we mentioned in the podcast might just help you through those things. If you have any questions to ask regarding this, please ask via Twitter. It's probably the best place to ask, and hopefully we can then address them on future shows. Thank you very much, and enjoy the interview. So today on the show, we've got Matt. So Matt has agreed to be our runner, who is getting back into running after a bit of an absence, and he's going to use this as an opportunity for Matt to basically ask any questions that he's got about getting back into running, trying to go over a little bit about why when he was trying to do running um, or get into running before there was a few issues so that hopefully we can um, stop him getting those same issues this time. So Matt, if you could just kind of introduce yourself and then give us a little bit of information really about your kind of sporting background. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Tom. Um, yep. Yeah, so yeah, I, I'm Matt. My sporting background is predominantly cycling. Um, so for four, four or five years, um, I concentrated on time trialing. Um, I was training between 10 and 12 hours a week um, and competing regularly. But two years ago, um, we 
delightfully had twins um, on top of already having a son, um, at which point I decided that I couldn't invest that amount of time in training. So I reduced it down to maybe just a few hours a week. Um, and then at, during the winter of uh, 2018 and uh, 2019 and into 2020, I decided to take up a bit of running um, just because it seemed to be much easier to fit into to, to a schedule and um, just took up less time really than cycling. Uh, I was running probably maybe three or four times a week. Each uh, session would be maybe just half an hour. But as time progressed, after maybe four or five weeks, I started getting uh, lower leg pain uh, below the knee, predominantly down the left side uh, of my left calf. Um, and on the right side, uh, underneath my calf, um, down towards uh, my Achilles. And th this progressed and gradually got worse. I ended up taking some time off, reduced my load, um, but in the end got to a point where my left leg became non-weight bearing uh, as the injury progressed. And I landed up kind of shelving, running, um, and as the summer, as the weather got better thereafter, I started getting to um, cycling a bit more. But I thought, you know, I'd like to get back to it. I really enjoy it. Uh, I find running very, let's say, honest. Um, less reliance on technology, other things. And it's just you uh, out there. And I quite like, quite like it. So, yeah, I just want to get back into it. And just got some questions about the best way to get back into it, how to progress uh, and put a plan together to reduce or certainly minimise the risk of injury moving forward. Okay, so I mean, I think you're, you're right in what you say about running. I think that's been, it's always been one of my kind of attractions to it and why I think it is um, such a, a kind of beautiful sport really. And that it's relatively simplistic. I think, I mean, personally for me, I can think back to the times when, when I got into running a long time ago and it was all, I was spending a lot of time on the track. It was all about timings. It was all um, kind of really focused on race specific sessions. And I think over the years, my cycling has, has kind of still stuck with using things like power meters, being quite rigid about various different elements and maybe to the detriment of actually enjoying it. My running has kind of gone the other way and I, I spend very little time on the road, I tend to be off-road if I possibly can. I haven't worn a Garmin or used kind of anything that measures anything for a really long time because I kind of felt I needed that um, that that kind of you know that that purity almost that just ability to kind of just get out there in the in the fresh air as much as anything else. Um, and I think the other thing you said is that you know having that, that you you think about your your kind of life and your work pressures. Um, I think running can fit really nicely into that because you can do. You can get a lot out of it for a very little actual time. And I think part of the problem with, with cycling is that if you particularly if you get good at cycling, you get to a point where you realise that unfortunately more volume is kind of what you need to a certain extent. And that becomes extremely difficult to then fit in in a in a particularly, you know, kind of family schedule as such. Yeah. Because you're you're constantly trying to think, you know, I, I know plenty of um Kind of cyclists that have you know they, they build up to a point where they're doing quite a lot of hours in the week and then it has to be more hours and it has to be more hours on a long ride on the weekend and you start to see or you say they start to mention things like how you know they or they're having to get out you know they're getting out at kind of five six in the morning on a sunday to desperately get out and get back home so they can you know not upset the family from not being around and you kind of start to realize that well maybe you should be using a sport like running that is actually a little bit more uh, conducive to that that you get the little you know little segments of time here and there where you can get out and enjoy it and there isn't this necessary this focus on both the technology side um and also needing more time because the other side of things i think if, with with cycling is it whatever i think whatever way you go at it however you want to start off and however you want to keep it almost as pure you get pulled into the uh the technology the bikes the um the, the, whether it's be you know, racing and time trialing and the focus on having to buy the next thing by the you know the next thing that makes you faster and it's it becomes very difficult because i think there's a a 
point where you kind of almost decide whether you want to spend that money and invest that time and be competitive or take it not as seriously. Whereas I think running can, can be, you can kind of do both um, without ha having to be focused on, on the technology side of things. So, so yeah, so good. Um, so we, we've mentioned a bit back before, but I think if you could go over a little bit of your, what I want to know is, is prior to starting this running block before, um, what was your kind of setup, your weekly setup like? I mean, what you, in terms of work and how many hours you would spend in the office or, or, or doing work at a desk and that side of things? Yeah, so my, my job is 100% desk-based, so would be, yeah, totally sedentary, um, uh, let's say. Um, before the pandemic and before lockdown, I would spend a reasonable amount of time travelling, so that would be in the UK, in the car, or uh, and internationally by car or by plane, so still sitting down and, um, and not much time on my feet. So I, I, I guess... <laughs> I'm, my job is sitting down and even when I was exercising at that point I was still sitting down because I, I, I was essentially cycling and those and yeah apart from uh, time uh, with the family um, out walking uh, and those sorts of things the, the majority of my time is spent uh, is spent sitting down at the desk so yeah for work would be 40 hours a week um, and traveling in and around that by car my commute used to be an hour each way so yeah that's the, the kind yeah of... I think I think I mean you're, you're somebody that I used to see quite a lot of it's because obviously that it's a very common thing to have a, an office-based job and also we're now in the situation with what's happened over the last um, year or so the people have moved to home and that has often meant that they might even be doing more sitting, more spending time at a desk because they set up their own environment and they're kind of obviously concentrating on doing their work, but it might be they potentially have time pressures of other things they need to do. So when they're doing their work, they have to just sit there and do their work. So there isn't sometimes when you're in offices, it might be that you sit a bit and then you might go and have a meeting, you move around, go to get a drink and these various things. So I'm finding speaking to people that actually the level of sedentary activity during this time has potentially increased. And it is a problem. The problem we have when it comes to, so thinking about the comparison between cycling and running and why you often find that people have that have desk-based jobs tend to do okay on the cycling side, but then struggle on the running side is because cycling is obviously a sitting activity. So just thinking about it from a really basic standpoint is that you're sitting, your weight your, your weight is being borne on the, the saddle and on the feet and on the hands. So there isn't that element of obviously holding yourself together in the same way that there is with running. So that's obviously the first major thing. The second major thing, the problem I think we often sometimes kind of almost misunderstand with running is that cycling as a comparison is a, you're um, sat in that position and you're applying a relatively small amount of force over and over and over again. I think it was always quite interesting how the, the idea or the, um, the, the kind of using things like weight training becomes a, a big argument in cycling because if you actually look at the data, because you're using such a small proportion of your absolute muscle strength, the logical argument is, well, why would you need to weight train? The actual real argument really is actually there's other reasons why you'd want to do it for things like core stability, which enables you to act, you know, glute input and all these things that might enable you to actually put in more sustained power. And maybe if you're a sprinter and you're, you actually are may, maybe limited by your absolute strength and power generation in the muscles. But the critical thing is that running, if you think about run, what running is, what, you know, it's a quite miraculous activity in that you are landing with a huge amount of, of your body, you know, force and body weight, over two times your body weight in force on a very small surface area, which is made often smaller by, by bad shoe choices that are too narrow, you are obviously asking a huge amount of those muscles, particularly around the hips and the core. And the problem is, obviously, if you spend a significant amount of time a day sat in a chair, particularly, unfortunately, it's even worse if you're sat in, in a kind of ergonomic desk chair, something that was probably often sold to people as being a, a real positive thing. It actually can make the situation worse, much like wearing an orthotic can eventually make the foot relatively weak and, and not really functional. Um, you're, you're in a situation where you then suddenly ask the body to... Um, 
enable you to land with this force on one leg very rapidly. And you are the contracting the muscles when you run relatively quickly with a quite a high amount of force. It just happens very quickly. So it's often viewed almost that, um, you know, when you're looking at a sport, you think that you're know, cycling almost more of a strength sport. Well, actually, it's almost the opposite. The strength and stability and the power required in running is far greater than it is in cycling. It's often required for a very, very small amount of time, which actually makes it almost more difficult to initiate. So if you come from that desk position, the critical thing is you have to have this bit between that prepares your body to be able to do that running bit again. So if we think back to when you started off, the, what was the kind of first thing? So you said your kind of lower leg, was that the kind of first things that you started noticing? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Um, the, the first uh, initial um, pain or discomfort was on the outer edge of, of, of my left calf. Didn't hurt when I was running. It was more when I wasn't, so the day in between um and it would be there and during um the, the initial part of the run or the next run and the warm-up it would go and then i would continue on and then it was just kind of a bit of a bit of a vicious cycle where it would get progressively worse until i maybe took three or four days off um and then it would go and then it would come back again um and then it would progress further down down the leg to, to underneath the calf or to the lower calf muscle. Um, but, okay. you know, just the way that it, it progressed. And But that was really the only side. The left side was worse than, than the right side. Um, but that was really the only sort of thing that materialised early on. So, I mean, that, that makes the kind of perfect sense. If we think about the, the fact that when you're running, one of the, the predominant things you're doing, you're landing you are both absorbing those forces, those the kind of huge body weight forces, but you're also at the same time charging the spring system in the lower leg particularly. So the Achilles and the Achilles tendon, um, as well as the arch and the various other structures of the lower leg form a spring system that is designed to absorb the impact energy and then reuse it. So this is something that really is one of the major things that sets apart your kind of elite runners versus your non-elite runners is their ability to reuse energy. It's obviously there's a lot of still a lot of muscle input, but the the kind of way to think about it is often you watch if you watch a video of an elite runner and they are um, they are driving their knee up and forward. And you often think of this as kind of, if you were to watch that from without any understanding about what's going on, you might think they are essentially driving that knee forward and they are going to land and push themselves off. So it's almost like they are scraping the ground along to push themselves forward. Because that in your mind might, might kind of make perfect sense because you're essentially almost as if, as if you were kind of dragging yourself along. That's not actually how it works. The way that it actually works is that as you drive the knee up and higher off the ground, at that point, you are putting the, the glute, the main kind of running muscle onto stretch, at which point your knee will reach the kind of top point that it gets to. The ankle will be kind of lagging behind and the hamstring's main job through a lot of the muscle, um, sorry, through a lot of the running activities, actually just to hold the ankle up to keep the pendulum really small, uh, sorry, really short, so that it can be driven, the knee can be driven faster, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you're driving this knee up, up and kind of forward, and then you are used suddenly going to contract the glute very powerfully to slam the foot down into the ground with considerable force that creates this reaction force with the ground in terms of this kind of recoil and spring-like reaction force that, that basically sends you forward. So that's kind of how it works. So we often think of the glute almost as extending the, the hip, which is what it predominantly does in cycling. But what it's actually doing is it is extending as it comes down to hit the ground, but it's at that point that it almost stops extending. And that the actual extension of the hip, the foot and the leg going backwards is predominantly passive at that point. So the critical thing is we need to be able to manage that impact with the ground. And if we can't manage that through the forces, then it's the things like the calf 
the lower leg muscles and structures, they're the ones that start taking the brunt. So that's essentially what happened in your instance. It is, they are the ones that's going to start taking the load and they're going to start complaining. And that is what you initially felt that they were starting to complain. And what often happens is it often happens, you, you think about that and you think, well, well, if that's the that right in theory, you'd say that that should happen on both sides relatively simultaneously and pretty much the same. But it doesn't quite work that way because obviously different sides are going to be ever so slightly different, different levels of tissue tolerance and strength. And it might be that one side starts to hurt and that actually actively slows you down, reducing the loads on the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm I'm quite a right-sided dominant person. So to find that my left side was weaker and that's where the where the calf was, let's say, yeah, complaining or grumbling was not that much of a surprise as I would say that I'm probably weaker on that side um, if the forces were the same on either side. So, yeah. Okay. So I think the first, I think the first thing you want to ask with you, how do you kind of, how do you start off or how do you, would you do this better this time, basically? So going through this again, how could you do it in a way that's not going to necessarily promote the same issues as you had before? So we have to think about that from a perspective of we've got to assume that because of spending a lot of time kind of sitting, that the structures in that lower leg, the hips as well, and the core and those things are potentially not as um, functional as we'd like. Now, the interesting side of this to me, and this is something that I've always that has been an interest of mine since I kind of started this off, and I think is often something that is potentially missed is how many of these elements are due to the actual hardware and how much of them is uh, is it is due to the software or the kind of input to them so i'll try and roughly explain what i mean by that in terms of the body it reminds me it makes me it does actually make me think of the the analogy of a computer so if you haven't run for a long period of time and you've kind of sat around um, and that you're in your mostly sedentary job or a job where you haven't had to, or even a sport like cycling where you haven't had to wait there. It's a bit like coming across an old computer that's just been sat there for a long period of time. Now, if you try and fire up that computer, there's probably going to be some problems with it. There's probably going to be some problems with its hardware because it's sat there for a long time. It's probably gathered dust. The fans are probably clogged. There might even be some potentially if it got a bit wet or a bit kind of damp in the environment, some of the circuit boards might be a little rusty. But actually, if you look inside, the hardware hasn't gone anywhere. It's just been not used. So it needs a good sorting, basically. But the major thing that's going to be wrong with it initially is it's going to be so out of date on the software side of things that it's not going to run anything anyway. So you'd have to start thinking about it as in, well, we need to get the hardware going and working, but at the same time, we need to upgrade the software. So when this comes to the body, the things we're thinking of, of the hardware, we're talking about the muscles, the tendons, the things that are not, they're not gone anywhere. If you look on, I always just say this kind of almost jokingly to people when they, when I talk about this analogy, again, to look at their legs, so look down and they, nothing's really gone anywhere. You've still got a muscle there. It's not wasted away completely. Luckily, by doing enough walking and activity and walking up and down the stairs and doing all the other things, it's not disappeared. But it's probably not working as well as we'd like, and it probably needs a bit of TLC to get it up to, up to speed. But the other thing, the software, this is the input of the brain into those muscles. And it, it's kind of encompassed in something called neural drive, which is the, the nerve input into that muscle. So this is something, this is a phenomenon that's often seen and reported and studied in, in weight training. I would, the analogy or the way I used to describe it is that I used to remember, I remember going um, when I used to live in Leicester and I was at the, um, even though I was I, up until the point I kind of left, I used the university gym. And I'd always say that the, the one of the best ways you can see the impact of neural drive was if you go to the university gym at the start of freshers, so the first time the freshers have arrived in September, and you watch all these kind of young lads crowding around the bench press machine. And generally, you know, these little, they kind of strip of wind. They've got no muscle on them at all to speak of. And they're all seeing who can bench press what. And generally, they all can bench press nothing in that they can barely lift the bar. So they're all kind of around, you know, crowding around and lifting pretty much the bar. You go a week later 
And some of those lads will be lifting 40, 50 kilos quite easily. Now, they haven't acquired any miraculous muscle in that time. What they've done is they've done an activity they've never really done before. And what's that, that has actually sent a signal to the brain to say, input into these muscles, so in that case, it would be the pecs and the chest muscles. We need more recruitment of the fibers that are there, please. And that has increased the nerve signals that are being sent to that muscle when you consciously say, I want to push up this bar. That means those muscle fibers have been, or more of them have been recruited, and suddenly strength has increased. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So that is that software. That is the upgrading the software. And that's something that happens really fast. And this is why it's something I've always been a fan of, why I've argued for it, because I still don't necessarily believe that a runner needs a lot of absolute muscle strength, because we know that we've got runners that are, you know, a great example of this is, um, someone like Mo Farah, who actually you look at him and he has no muscle to speak of anywhere. There isn't, you know, you, if, if he needed more muscle strength, muscle strength is really a function of the cross-sectional area of the muscle. You, in order to be strong, to be that strong, you have to have a, you know, you know, you increase the surface area. That's the best way to increase your muscle strength. Well, he clearly doesn't need any absolute strength, but yet I bet he could probably lift a lot heavier weights than most people could because his actual neural drive to those to those relatively slender muscles is very high. But the great thing about that is that software upgrades can happen really fast, but you have to give like the signal and to be able to do that, and you have to give the brain chance to respond. Okay? Yeah. So the premise behind that is, well, well how would you do that? Well, the key element for that that increases neural drive is frequency. So the more frequently you do an activity and use a muscle in the way you want to use it, the more rapidly you will increase your, the neural drive required. And it also puts you in a situation where if you're using it frequently but not overloading it, you don't do the kind of potential damage or the perception of damage that causes that pain and those things to, to actually start hurting, and particularly in the lower leg. Okay? Yeah. So for you, the key to starting off is frequency, but also making sure that you're not doing too much that overloads those relatively sensitive structures. Now, if we were thinking about, so let's say you were to go out for a run based on your cycling background, what kind of length of run might you go out for initially if you were starting off? I'd be looking at 20 to 30 minutes, probably. Okay. So that that's that to me, I mean that to me, and probably most people that are listening, sounds a relatively conservative or relatively, you know, that's reasonable. Particularly if you've been a cyclist, you're probably used to doing, you know, you probably wouldn't ride for less than like an hour because you wouldn't want to get all your kit on to ride for less than an hour, even if it's indoors. So starting off at 30 minutes sounds pretty reasonable. But what if I said that actually, if you're starting off, you haven't run for a while, 30 minutes could be massively, even potentially even three times or more too long to run for. Because the, the key is, is that these structures, as I say, are quite sensitive. They are not really ready to go yet. And that actually even running for say five minutes could have that beneficial impact but not necessarily cause the overload. Okay. Okay. So at this point, the thing I'll, the, the, the bit I want to mention about is a bit, is a set of research um, by a fantastic researcher called Keith Barr, who's become, he's one of those people that's been doing this research for a long period of time. But then recently, I think you know, it's always the same story. They get, it gets picked up by someone then does a magazine article and then it becomes kind of front page news in the kind of running world. And his research is all focused around collagen, particularly how to kind of lay down and improve your, um, essentially the collagen fibers within areas like the Achilles tendon. And the reason he, he got to kind of prominence recently is he did a study where he, they measured what would happen if you ingested gelatin and a dose, a little tiny bit of vitamin C um, about an hour before you ran um, and what he found was that if you did that with about 10 to 15 grams of gelatin, which is essentially jelly, um, or you can get more specialized things like collagen, um, sub like kind of substrates, but you can actually just use jelly. Um, 
he found that this this increased the um, the uptake of collagen fight or essentially uptake of collagen um, building blocks into the Achilles tendon. And this increased your ability to, or what they found was actually in the one of the end studies was showing that it actually increased performance in the 5K by increasing your ability to generate these kind of elastic forces. So the reason that his other research then became really interesting was they what they tried to find trying to do was find out what would be the kind of optimal stimulus for this. And what they found was it was actually a lot shorter than people were expecting. It was about six minutes. So they found that after about six minutes, you would reach your optimal stimulus of, and they were doing things like hopping and skipping and loading activities that essentially, if you think running is really just the same thing, it is going left, right, left, right, but the same, essentially the, the same kind of mechanism in the lower leg. But after about six minutes, something happened. They reached that optimal point of the stimulus that you get, but it started to actually fall off in that it wasn't you reached optimal and then it just stayed level. They actually found that in the the less trained runners, it seemed that actually you potentially might start doing more harm than good. But actually in the elite runners, they were able to sustain that level for a long period of time. So they were able to go out and run for maybe hours and not cause significant damage. But your less trained runners, they fell off a cliff. They were actually suddenly gonna put themselves into a situation where they were overloading those tissues as opposed to actually improving them. So this is my logic behind going out and doing these kind of five to 10 minute runs that you might sandwich either side of say a walk so that you get the, the time out, but you actually run in the middle is, um, is relatively short. So how does that sound? Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. It does, I, I guess it's uh, along the similar lines of, of other uh, beginner running programs that, that, you, that you see couch to 5k for example where you're only really running for one minute at a time when you first start uh, but no it makes perfect sense and yeah easy to schedule in you know you can easily do that in your lunch break or at the beginning of the day or or, or later in the afternoon so yeah easy to schedule in such a short a short excursion out yeah i think i think the part of the problem and this is something so i think back to when i've when I've made these suggestions to people before, and I've even suggested something that I, I've often done and I've suggested to other people to do is actually you could do this run twice a day, even sometimes three times a day. I've had some people that do these kind of short little efforts almost, you know, four or five times a day when they've they've kept their basically kept their kind of running stuff on. They've been at home. They just started and then thought, right, I'm going to go out for a quick trot on the block, five minutes, come back, do some other stuff to, in order to increase this kind of um, frequency. The, people, the response I often get from people is it seems so short that it's pointless. And unfortunately, this is coming back to, this makes you think of kind of human nature, where we, we seem to have this kind of buy-in thing is that if something's not worth doing, if something's worth doing, we've got to do it proper, basically. You know, if it's worth going out for a run, I'm going to run for half an hour. But I think the other issue is, is that often, so obviously you're going to start running because you want to start running. You want to be a better runner and you want to enjoy the sport. A lot yeah. of people, when they're doing this, they've got an eye on um, burning calories. And unfortunately, the problem with the burning calories side is one, it is a bit of a fallacy. In fact, actually, really interesting um, research recently coming out by a guy called Herman Potzner. And he's actually written, a, I think, a book that pretty much the title is you know, Run for All These Different Benefits, i.e. brain health, um, and all this amazing stuff around the body, but don't do it for weight loss because actually it can be a really poor way to to maintain sustained weight loss. But a lot of people have that eye on that. So they think, well, I'm not putting all this stuff on to run around the block for five minutes to burn off five calories and, and not be able to eat the thing that I want to eat. And unfortunately, that means people often tend to overexert themselves initially because they have that eye on that side of things. They have that eye on, I'm going to run to try and you know, do something or they, they want to run until they feel like they're might be out of breath. You know, they, they have like other markers. And the problem with that is that if you do that, particularly initially, you may then feel you might get to the point where you run half an hour and you feel out of breath. But you your lower leg has already been overloaded way, way before that. And you won't feel that yet. You'll feel that later on and you'll feel it tomorrow. And so it's this delayed response that can be really difficult because you're likely, you know, you're 
you're someone that's been cycling so you're someone that is on a far higher kind of baseline fitness you know fitness level than most people you're probably going to find that if you go out and run for five minutes you know without this exp- explanation you probably think oh, this is pointless i feel fine i am um, i'm barely out of breath what's the point in that and it's like you have to have this um confidence that at the moment you're just trying to lay this very careful groundwork and that once you then lay that groundwork you can accelerate things quite rapidly because i think that was the the other thing that you said you wanted to ask about is well how do you progress this i guess yeah so it's like well how do you you know and, and everyone this is the thing is that everyone's progression on this is unique and this is unfortunately where you know you say about um with the couch to 5k i think those programs can be phenomenally good for the right people so for instance it worked brilliantly well for my wife who didn't have a running background, needed something that could track and keep her motivated. But also, she um, often, particularly particularly in the in the uh, the colder weather, would often feel quite out of breath. She had a bit of potentially exercise-induced asthma. So that was often her limiter, and that she'd start off quite fast with these runs and be out of breath relatively quickly. Whereas following the app meant that she was stopped before she could do that. So therefore she didn't suddenly have this blow up moment of feeling out of breath and wanting to stop and feeling dreadful. It kind of kept her, to, to kind of reined her in, shall we say. And those apps can be fantastic for the people that are across a baseline. They're both not fit cardiovascularly and also not fit on the anatomical side. You'll probably find with your background in the sport and in cycling that your actual cardiovascular fitness isn't really a problem. It is the the hardware, the anatomical side, the ability to control and land and that side of things that is the limiter for now. So what you might find is that doing these kind of high frequency short runs initially, but very rapidly, maybe even in the the kind of course of a few weeks, you'll actually find that you can probably increase that quite quickly as long as you stay really intuitive to it. So it isn't a case that you're going to do five minutes a day for the next month and then you'll go 10 minutes a day all these kind of things you might find that after a month of doing short runs that yeah you can go out and run half an hour without any issue at all and that's why i think you know everyone's got to be quite um conscious of the their limiters but also what they're trying to achieve so for you it's quite clear that the thing you need to achieve is this progression from taking you from someone that sits to someone that can weight bear on one leg quite happily using those mechanisms in the lower leg particularly no i think that yeah i'm i'm guilty of all of those things that 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 you've mentioned about you know going out for half an hour otherwise it doesn't seem worth it or running too hard too fast um at the beginning and then paying for it days later when the rest of the body catches up um but i had also recognized that i probably do need to let's say leave my ego at home and just do the right thing and trust the process and and those sorts of things as you do with other areas of your training and this is just something else but yeah so it makes perfect sense to to do that and yeah trust the process and it'll all uh, it'll all come together in the end i think i mean the thing is is that at the end of the day we yeah I, one of the things that i find most interesting about sport is that it's a very can be a very obvious um a way of looking at the human psychology, should we say? I think sports psychology. I think I almost feel like sports psychology is missed or a misway misrepresentation, because essentially it's psychology. It's not really a lot. Of, you know, the sports psychology might focus on things like um, race winning ability and efforts and the, the kind of elite athletes and, and not choking and all these kind of things. But actually, all of these sport elements often bring in elements of our actual just basic human nature and the way that we think about things. So. The way that I kind of mean this is that I think about, and I often with these things, you're, at the end of the day, we, we only, the best person, the best thing we often know, if we're very conscious, is ourselves. So I can often, you know, I'm, I'm in the sport, I've been doing sport and triathlon and these things for quite a long time, and I've gone through these things. And I hope that's enabled me to learn and apply some of these things with other people. But a good example of thinking about that is that I, um, I've always had a relatively extensive running background, 
Um, since when I was younger and then getting towards into triathlon, running was always the thing that I could do relatively easily. And I have been in a situation where I've run significant, you know, I've run 100 mile weeks quite comfortably and I go out for two or three hours on trail runs. But I, um, particularly recently, have gone through periods where I haven't run almost at all, partly because of trying to find the time, partly because of focusing on things like cycling where I decided I'd found something like recently it's been Zwift racing I found something I quite enjoyed doing um, and it's taken my time and therefore I've actually just focused on that well if I was to go out and run now I may have that extensive running history in the back of my mind knowing that I can easily run marathon distances or I could but if I try to go and run now and run for more than maybe even if I tried to run for half an hour I probably would struggle I probably struggle that day and I probably struggle the next day and the next day. So unfortunately, when it comes to that kind of software, when it comes to that input, it's very much easy come, easy go. And I think we often, as I say, we have that, that ego, that thing that, that drives us in the back of our mind that makes us think, well, I did this before or I'm fit or I can do all these things. So therefore I should have no issue with this. And unfortunately, that's not quite how it works, is it? No, no, certainly not. And I think we have to, yeah, the, the biggest, the most important thing where we learn it, uh, a new to us skill or a skill that we haven't done for a while is that we have to check that ego completely and just be, I, I mean, you, you just have to look at children. They, you know, young children don't have egos as such. And they just do. And they will try things and they will, um, they will experiment and they will fail. But they will also not, presume they can do things necessarily that they haven't recently done and their brain doesn't tell them that they can do they have to test it a little bit and see and then test it a bit and see and I think unfortunately humans and athletes in particular we often get caught up in the narrative of what I used to do or what I could do or what I was I did when I was a kid and forget that the big gap of time that we might have had between then and now is so large that it has actually changed us as a person that is changed particularly how we move but the fact that actually the hardware is is still there so i think we have to look at it from both sides i think people i mean i've had people that wouldn't attempt some of that stuff because they presume that that gap has meant that the hardware has disappeared that they could never do it and what's the point but it's finding that balance between knowing that the hardware is there but you need to try and basically bring it back up to speed but carefully and when you know it's up to speed then that's the point where you can start to to kind of push yourself a bit um and i think that's the best way to to kind of start off and, and enjoy the sport as opposed to risking having the same kind of problems again no it, it all makes sense and i think it's a it's a good um sort of framework let's say to to follow um just little and often to start with and uh, and progress it from there see how it feels I guess quite a lot of it is to see how you not necessarily how you feel in the run but how you feel after the run and the next day um opposed to yeah how you actually feel when you're out on the road yes which will tell you more tell you more about what's going on yeah i think the, the other thing about doing the shorter runs as well is that just because the run itself is short it doesn't mean the preparation or the post run kind of um, essentially warm down or um, and that side of things needs to be that short. So this is often the thing is that we view the kind of warm up and the, the, the things we do to prepare to, for a run as the kind of, you know, the starter, shall we say, and the bit at the end is like the dessert. And we presume that the bit in the middle, the main course has got to be far bigger than those two. And that's actually not the case at all. And actually in this situation, it's okay that the you know we might do more preparation and this is what i do with a lot of people that i've seen that i can give a very designed program to prepare them to run is when they start off particularly if they are kind of in this retraining phase that preparation phase before they run might be 10 to 15 minutes long the run might be only five and the the kind of post bit where they can do a bit more of the mobility stuff having warmed up and having moved through those positions that might be again another 15 minutes and that as the run gets longer the whole session gets longer and then often what happens is the the preparation phase can gradually be tapered down as you become you know, you refine things but also you get to a point where you might not need to do certain activities certain certain um 
kind of positions or movements or exercises as as many times because you are getting used to them does that make sense yeah so is there anything particular that you'd recommend doing before you run so so yeah so i like to think of it i mean obviously the ideal is to have something more kind of targeted i do like to so when i see people i often give them exercises particularly around the hips tend to be the main focus area to try and almost activate particularly the muscles on the sides of the hips so the 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 movement i quite like is called um a hip hip hitch or a hip hike i quite like it's just quite an, a, an easy move to do where you essentially stand so you stand kind of side on on a step um like you're kind of stairs holding onto something and you essentially so you've got one foot stand so let's say it's the left foot standing on that step and the right foot and the right leg is kind of dangling off the side and you gradually okay, yeah. drop the leg down kind of tilting the pelvis and then you bring that leg back up by pushing down and contracting the muscle that is on the left side of the hip. So it's quite a difficult activity and movement to explain without having someone right in front of you. That's why it tends to be something I, when I do in person, but that's quite good at starting to activate the sides of the hips. There are other ones. And I have often, when I haven't been able to see somebody, I often prescribe, there's a 10 minute um, YouTube video that I've, I've always loved. It's a little, little kind of hip and thigh Pilates. And what I'll do is I'll put that as, a, as in the show notes so people can have a look and I'll send that to you to have a look at. But it's about 10 minutes of basically lying on your side, moving your leg around in various positions in space. So you've got kind of lying on your side um, as if you were doing a kind of almost side plank type movement. And you're moving the top leg all over the place in various different patterns of movement to try and kind of wake up and activate all those muscles around the hip that need to do all that stabilization work. So I quite like that stuff. Then going from that into doing things like kind of deep, nice walking lunges, kind of opening up the hips. So you're not really you're not stretching, so you're not holding a stretch and you're not pushing into anything to really kind of stretch on a muscle. You're just, I want to call it opening up the hips. You know, opening up the hips in a way that you're going to use them when you run. So kind of having that knee forward, leg back, kind of opening up around the hips into a nice deep lunge. And then maybe yeah. some kind of body weight squats. So kind of holding a hip position that's a, almost kind of just a wider than shoulder width apart, not too wide because you just you don't really kind of need the extra width. And you don't need to put your toes too far out like you would if you were doing a big deep squat kind of with a heavy barbell. So you just kind of move down into that body weight squat, trying to keep your back nice and straight so you're not kind of rolling forward. But just just kind of, as I say, it's like it's opening up the hips, trying to open up those um, those muscles and get things starting to move. And then the critical thing then is just starting off the run really easy. So you start off, the best way to start off is walking. So taking a nice walk and taking some nice, big, deep breaths through the nose. So what that does is by, by breathing through the nose, you, it enables you to stand up really tall, opening up the chest, holding a good posture that is critical for good running, holding a nice tall posture. Opening up that chest also fills the lungs, aerates the bottom part of the lungs, because that's where the blood is when you, when you run. Your blood is generally pulled by gravity around the bottom part of the lungs. So you want to try and aerate down to the bottom part of the lungs so that you can get the air, the oxygen, to where it actually needs to be. So I often like people to start off a run, even when they're running, breathing through the nose. In fact, if, actually, if anything, if you can build up to the point where you're doing the majority of your running, carefully breathing through the nose, that's really beneficial not only to keep you at a nice, relatively easy pace, but also to aerate the bottom parts of your lungs. So then obviously going into your run, and then after your run, it's basically you can do almost a reverse of the same process. So going through those deep lunges, going through the kind of deep squats into that, and almost you know, think about how much range of motion you had before and see if you can move into a further range of motion afterwards. So it's kind of warming up around the hips, going into those deep ranges of motion. And then the critical element, and I always say it's the most important rule when you finish running, is don't sit down for an hour. So whatever you do, don't sit down. Because when you run, you're using your, obviously your hip muscles quite a lot, you're using your hip flexors, a lot of the muscles, as I say, around the, particularly the front part of your hip. If you then sit down, particularly if you sit on a really deep, squishy sofa, and hold that, that hip position that is that sat position with your knee up, those muscles are just gonna stick in that position. And they're not going to want to go anywhere. And it, that often I find is, you know, you sit down if you run and then you sit down for even a few minutes. You try and get up from that position and it really hurts. And that kind of shows that what the muscles didn't like what you just did in that you basically you did some work on them without giving them a chance to kind of loosen themselves up and relax down to their normal position. You sat down. 
And whilst there is still only tentative evidence that sitting causes an actual shortening of those muscles, it is a suggestion that particularly if you do things like running where you've been contracting that muscle over and over and over again, if you hold that muscle then in a shortened position, probably not going to do it any good. And in terms of obviously that that length that you actually do need for optimal workings, it's probably not a good idea. So it's a simple thing, but actually it's it's harder than it sounds. It's surprising how many people I speak to about that and they still do it and they still say, oh, yeah, but I really just want to sit down. And it's like, well, just fight that urge, you know, walk around, drink some water, do the washing up, do something, play with your kids on the floor, move around, you know, just try not to slump yourself into a chair. Okay, good. What about there are lots of uh, lots of things online and you read lots of things about coming back from a run and doing like a, a set of static stretches or have that or not i i'm not a fan of static stretching in general um partly because i i don't see the need for trying to gain extra length in muscles particularly as extra length can often weaken muscles so i'm not a massive fan of the static stretching and often when people say that they feel better when they do a stretching session after they run it's mostly because that stretching session stops them from just sitting down and doing nothing so I prefer something that's a little bit more dynamic, i.e. going into the... Because if you think about it, what you what is better to do really is go into your kind of dynamic ranges of motion. So going down to a nice deep lunge that you go, you know, take it, you know, you can go over, you know, do a lunge over 10, 15 seconds. It's really slow movement into that lunge position. Now that's going to lengthen those muscles quite naturally. But instead of stretching them as such, it's actually, as they're contracting, they're allowed to slowly relax into their length. And I think that's a better way of doing it. So rather than doing what is often quite this kind of convoluted and very specific, I'm going to pull on this muscle and hold this long stretch, I'm not really sure that necessarily does any good. It definitely doesn't seem to in any way help injury prevention. We've studied that so many times. But I think actually that more dynamic movement is more beneficial. But unfortunately, as I say, the, the general consensus is that, that people do that stuff because it, they move, it moves them around and it stops them then from just being static. So they tend to feel better. So essentially, it's anything that keeps you moving. Probably not going to do necessarily any harm, but I prefer that if rather than doing the stretching, I prefer doing, as I say, something that's more weight bearing, that is actually more dynamic movement into those ranges of motion around the hips and walking around to gradually kind of warm yourself down as opposed to sitting on the ground and doing a hamstring stretch and things. Because as I say, I think I think it's a bit of a misunderstanding that the muscles seem that flexibility comes from length because it doesn't. Flexibility is often, so just to, just to, as an aside point to kind of explain this, um, the flexibility or the ability you know, essentially, particularly around a joint and the mobility is largely dictated by how much those muscles around the joint are contracted as a natural state, which is related to how the brain is controlling them. So a good way of describing this, or a good way of really emphasizing this point, is that um, when we used to do, so when I used to do orthopedics, we used to do um, hip replacements. And a typical hip replacement, or a typical person, um, let's say it's an old lady with a hip, needs you know, her hip replacement, who's got such bad osteoarthritis in the joint, that the hip joint barely moves and it's stiff as anything you can't move it all you you can examine move that hip around but it, it barely moves through any range of motion but what we did is we used to do a study where we we do a full examination whilst they would just like to get their anesthetic then they would be put to sleep and then we do the same thing again well, often what happened is they'd actually have just the, the lower part of their body put to sleep so it'd be kind of what's called a spinal so they'd be awake and chatting and we do the examination again and it'd be like completely different. So suddenly, by switching off the brain's input to those muscles, we were able to move them around all over the place. And that explains the fact that actually most um, lack of mobility or lack of perceived flexibility is actually due to a lack of muscular relaxation and control, which isn't achieved through stretching. It's actually achieved through controlled movement into those ranges of motion. Does that make sense? I went off on a bit of a tangent. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's, yeah, it's a different way of looking at it. And actually, a lot of this comes from uh, there's something called Z Health, really interesting guy, a really interesting process where he does lots of tricks. And the tricks are really interesting. You can view them as tricks or you can view them as a demonstration of how the neural system works. 
For instance, one great example, and it's a fantastic trick, is you ask somebody, it's hard to explain over podcast, but I'm going to try my best. You get someone to stand upright with their arms out to the sides. So imagine you're standing up tall and you've got your arms stretched out to the sides as far as you can, you know, kind of T-shape, should we say. And you have your hand, your palm, facing backwards, okay? So you as a practitioner now ask that person to bring their right arm back as far as they can get it. So they're kind of basic, and they'll say, they'll, they'll go to as far as they can, and they'll go to the point where they feel a stretch at the front of their shoulder. So does that make sense what I'm doing? I'm kind of push. it's yeah. almost like I'm pushed back with a straight arm. Now, you then take a, a in, the, in the video, he uses a ball, you take an object, and you put the object in the palm of their hand, same hand, and you say, now I want you to push that ball back as far as you can. And what always happens is they go much, much further. And the reason that works is because instead of thinking about the stretch at the front of their shoulder, their brain is focused on pushing the ball back in the palm of their hand. And that stops them thinking about the stretch, which means they get a lot further. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's really, it's fascinating to watch it because you think that's gotta be fake. And then you try it and it works. And you realize that we are controlling our movement. So we are, and it's the, another one that I used to use with people is if you stand on one leg and make circles. So if you like stretch, so stand on one leg, you, you pick the other leg up off the floor and you make circles with a straight leg with your foot. So you're making almost like you're, almost like there's a pencil between your toes and you're trying to draw a circle on the floor. Okay. So you're trying to draw like a circle. Now, if you keep that foot beneath you, or even if you look down at it, you can draw a really good circle. But if you close your eyes or you put your foot behind, you so you point your foot backwards almost, so you contract the hip and push that leg backwards behind you, suddenly your nice circle becomes a square. And the way that works is because when you are unable to essentially outside of your element of control, so your leg is now in a position which is less controlled because it is basically in an area that you don't, your, your body space awareness is not as good, your ability to control is diminished, but also at the same time, you feel a stretch and a tension at the front of the hip. Well, actually, when they did studies and, and practiced this, they found that you suddenly, as you practice that more and more, you gained more spatial control with that leg. The, you gained more length in your hip flexor and you were able to bring your leg back further. So the whole point of that is that actually the stretch on your hip flexor isn't a stretch, isn't a, a stretch, isn't a pull. It's not it's not passive, it is actively contracting to stop you going into an area where you are not controlled. So the more you work into those areas of, of, of lack of control, the more those muscles will relax. So it's a completely different way of looking at it. But taking that back to stretching, you can then see why statically stretching a muscle to increase its length wouldn't actually achieve that. And it doesn't, it doesn't really work. The problem is, is there's this confounding thing in that the stronger athletes, so let's say, let's say a swimmer and their shoulders, they tend to be stronger, have more have more mobility in those end ranges of motion, and they also happen to stretch because it's a, a dogma that they've always done. So they then yeah. say, well, the reason I have flexible shoulders is because I stretch. Well, my argument is the reason you can stretch is because you have flexible shoulders, and the reason you have flexible shoulders is because you have strength and control in those positions, okay? Yes. Yeah. No, no, it all makes all make sense. A lot of these are, the problem with a lot of these are, they're all, a lot of them are theory based. A lot of them are, there's always arguments either side of the coin. You could argue that by doing static stretching into your ranges of motion, you could achieve similar things. Personally, I've not seen that. And actually, I'd much rather have strength and control in a position than, than having length or muscle abnormally lengthened. Because the thing that I've often seen, I've seen it in my clinic on a good number of occasions is I've seen floppy runners who were overstretched. They've done so much work trying to stretch out their ankles, which is a bad thing for running. Run, running needs kind of slightly stiff ankles. Swimmers that have got super flexible ankles because they've stretched them to death to try and increase their, their whip action of their ankle, they're floppy, they're all over the place. So actually excessive stretching can sometimes make you a, um, want to say weaker runner, i.e. too much flexibility, not enough strength. So yeah, definitely something to to consider. But that's something we can um, we can definitely discuss in more in kind of future future episodes. I think.
yeah loads of other questions on, on lots of other topics but um let's just concentrate on getting moving yeah. first i think the best thing so i think we'll leave it there for now i think you go and have a go have a go at the frequency over the next few weeks see how you get on see what kind of what starts to happen we'll reconvene in in kind of uh, a week two week three week time when you've had a go at a few of those frequent runs see how you feel and then we'll be able to answer it because the idea behind this or the main idea really is to to kind of keep getting in touch keep answering those questions so that we're kind of showing this journey as it's going through it rather than going through going away and doing stuff and building up a load of of questions at the end it's kind of a i want it almost to feel like what would you do if you had to ask someone if you wanted to know something then you know to what am i going to do in the next few days you know how how does this how does this feeling how does this you know i've now got this bit of ache here what does that mean what do i need to do about it and how do i you know kind of basically sort it out yep no sounds good um, fantastic brilliant to uh, to work with so yeah i'll, uh, I'll well, thank you um for being on the show hopefully um the listeners will find it interesting to start off with and hopefully a few of them will also kind of follow you know maybe follow along with this journey with you if they've got that idea that they'll kind of try and simulate a little bit of those things practice those things of what you're doing so that they can kind of copy and then essentially it's like working with lots of people so that's brilliant but thank you again for coming on and uh, we'll speak to you soon no thanks don thanks, thanks for your time it's really no worries, thank you bye